to know the best CEOs, investors, and entrepreneurs in the mining industry. I'm your host, Jamie Keach. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. And we are about to have a conversation that's been a few weeks in the making um, with a gentleman that I've been talking to for a couple of years now and invested heavily in one of his projects and companies that he's leading. Uh, we're going to talk to Rick Clark. Rick is the CEO of Orca Gold and the chairman of Montage Gold, a company that recently listed on the Toronto Venture Stock Exchange. So without further ado, Rick, how's it going today? Good, Jimmy. Thanks for inviting me. So we can't tell from the extremely nondescript background of you, but where, where are you right now? I'm locked away in my apartment in Vancouver. I'm actually in my flat in London, UK, um, in my office here. Okay. So, Rick, today I want to talk about the work you're doing at Montage, a company that uh, I'm invested in and Resource Insider members are invested in, of course, Orca Gold, and then a bit about your history uh, with Redback Mining and the work in Africa you do. But I'm going to start the conversation actually very simply. And I was thinking about this last night, and I'm kind of embarrassed. And I was going to ask you before, but I figured I'd wait to the conversation to our podcast. I actually don't know you know, outside of your, your, your last 10 years of professional background, what your, what your background is. Are you a, a geologist by training, a, an accountant? How did you come into this, the mining world? Well, it's a, it's, it's a bit of a funny, complicated story in some ways. Um, and it is a story. Uh, when I was a kid, my uncle was a geologist based out of Vancouver. And I got fascinated with what he did to the point where for Christmas and birthdays and stuff, he used to give me minerals, mineral samples that he'd obtained from the different projects that he'd worked on. And I got pretty pretty attracted to that. And, and when I was 17, just out of high school, or just, just finished my last year of high school, uh, my uncle helped me arrange a job with uh, a company at the time called BP Minerals. And I got sent up as a junior soil sampler and all around sort of a rust about type of a guy to a camp in Northern British Columbia. And that, that summer, I was up there for almost four months and that summer really got me hooked. And I came back and decided that I was gonna go to university and I was gonna focus on, on geology, but at the same time, wasn't sure. So I basically went down two paths and I did um, political science and geology all the way through. Mm. And, uh, and all through my university career, I worked every summer for different, different exploration companies. When I finished my degrees, I um, decided that at that point, uh, in those days we got married young, we had families young, and I looked at the career in those days. It wasn't, you know, a, a career where you regularly got to fly out and see your family. When you went out in the bush, you were out in the bush for four to six months of the year. Right. Not very conducive for, for a family life. And, and I decided that's not the way I wanted my career to go. So I made the decision to go to law school. And uh, I did that. I did my first year, believe it, funnily enough, I did my first year in, uh, in Australia, in Sydney, Australia, because I was still in the travel mode and like traveling. Uh, so my wife and I at the time went to Sydney 
And then after that, because there was a reciprocity arrangement between Canada and Australia, I was able to transfer back and I finished my law degree at UBC where I got my undergrad degree. Um, I then got a job in Vancouver and ended up being a mining lawyer. And all, I was a corporate lawyer and all my clients were mining companies, both exploration and actual development and producers. And I did that for about seven years. And then, I, then a client of mine, and many of you'll know, and many of your, your listeners slash readers will know, a guy by the name of Simon Ridgway. Um, Simon was a client of mine. He and I started a company together called Tombstone. Yes, of course. And Simon effectively convinced me to leave the practice of law and go into the business of running uh, gold, gold exploration companies. And I did that with Simon uh, and our partner at the time, a Venezuelan by the name of Mario Schurtlander, who many people will know as well. And we were very successful. We, we got very lucky um, thanks to Simon's exploration skills. And we ended up finding a, a project in Honduras, which we sold to Glamis, which became Gold Corp. And at that point, Simon uh, wanted to go on and continue doing what he does, which is generative exploration work. I had decided to go, I wanted to change and go into development and production. And so I left Simon and Mario at that point. Um, we remain very, very close friends today and we invest together and do different things together and see each other quite a bit. Um, but I went off in a different professional direction and I joined the Lundin Group through Lucas's father, Adolf. I didn't know Lucas at the time. And I went to work for Adolf and that was over 20 years ago. Hmm. So, so this is interesting. And, you know, like I said earlier, I didn't know the, the genesis, that, that whole background story. And, you know, it's not dissimilar, uh, as I hear it, from, from Ross Beatty, what he did earlier in his career, right? Had a career sort of early on as a geologist, realizing he wanted sort of some different skill sets, maybe didn't want to spend all of his time picking up rocks in the field when he got older, and, and again, getting a, a law degree. Are there many... Are there many lawyers in your experience, because I can't think of many, that have transitioned out of legal practice to actually running, managing, building, uh, mining or resource companies? There's lots, of course, that work with them very closely, but are, are actually sort of at the helm taking the, the leadership role. Look, I, I'll be honest, uh, two things. Well, I'll, I'll comment on Ross, who's also a very close friend of mine. And Ross... Ross and I were a little bit different in that Ross, I went on to practice law for seven years. Ross never practiced law. He never intended to. Um, Ross will tell you, he went to law school so he could learn to be a lawyer so he didn't have to pay lawyers <laughs> and things as a exploration guru uh, at the time as a, uh, as a mining guy. Uh, and that obviously worked out really well for Ross. The, for me, I don't, you know, it's an interesting question. And I would say, I don't really know um, too many people. Another good friend of mine who is a lawyer and ran a very, very large company is a guy by the name of Chuck Janess, who ran mm -hmm. Volk. Yeah. So uh, Chuck is an American lawyer and ended up running a, uh, a very large gold mining companies, but there are not many of us. Yeah, you see it, of course, with engineers and geologists, but also accountants, but less so, less so lawyers. It might be, 
<laughs> Maybe lawyers are too smart to, to, to realize all the risk they're taking on by actually being the head of a public company. Well, there'd be, there'd be also very few lawyers uh, or, or people with legal degrees like Ross and I that have a geological background. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, when, yeah, when you joined um, the Lundin group early on, how, how did you come in? You started working with Adolf, but was that in the role of a, of a lawyer to the group overseeing multiple deals? Did you take on the leadership of a specific company within the group? How did that sort of transition from working with Simon into uh, the Lundin's actually actually happen? Yeah, when I joined um, the group, or, or at the time there wasn't really a group, um, but when I went to work for Adolf, I didn't go as a lawyer. I, I effectively made the decision to retire. I went, and as you said, Adolf had made a lot of investments in different companies that he was otherwise unsure of or unhappy with and wanted to, wanted to come up with a, a solution or understand the direction those were going. So um, the group, as it's now known, at the time, Lucas hired for the same reason, a guy by the name of Paul Conabear. And Paul was given uh, responsibility for certain companies like Tenki Mining, mm-hmm. uh, sort that out. And I came in for some of these juniors that Adolf had invested in to give him advice on what to do and, and try to sort those out. So I spent a couple of years uh, doing that. And both, you know, I'm pleased to say that both Paul Conabear and I were, were pretty successful at doing that. And um, the last company I worked out for the group was a company called Champion, who had a gold project in Mexico. Um, and sorry, I got that wrong. That's not the case. The last company was a company called Champion, and it had an industrial mineral project in the African country of Guinea-Bissau. And the uh, the one in Mexico was a different deal I, I did. Um, but the one in Guinea-Bissau, we looked at, it was a phosphate project, and I went in and said to Adolf at the end of a lot of due diligence and a lot of money spent by various people, that it was an amazing prospect, amazing project, but very unlikely that a Western company would ever be able to put it in production for all sorts of reasons. And my advice is that we get out of it and do something with the vehicle. Uh, Adolf uh, heeded my advice and we made the decision to create a gold company that would look towards development in West Africa and we turned Champion into Redback. Now is, oh, I guess I got a couple questions here. So at this point, uh, the Lunding Group, which wasn't quite a group, was it essentially a fund at this point, which was allocating capital and owning large portions of companies, or was it sort of personal capital of the family at this point? How were how these things actually structured? Was Adolf, uh, I guess he wasn't actively involved as chairman or anything in these companies in the way that Lucas would re- would later be. How did that relationship between, I guess, the financiers and the, and the co- these companies that you guys were involved in and helping to build exist? Okay, before my time, um, as you know, Adolf has two sons, had two sons, uh, Ian mm-hmm. and Lucas, Lucas being the oldest. Um, they were both trained as petroleum engineers and, and Lucas had more of a mining bent. Um, he went to school in New Mexico. Um, at, and Adolf had been 
obviously his primary focus had been oil and gas and he would had branched out mostly into the Canadian market and the VSC market into uh, minerals, hard rock. So the investments of Adolf uh, and his friends and associates got to the point where he needed uh, somebody to oversee the mining investments directly and the oil stuff directly. And he basically said to his two sons, you know, I need one of you to move to Vancouver to do the mining and the other one to stay here with me in Geneva and do, do uh, oil and gas. And Lucas stuck his hand up for mining and he moved to Vancouver and was in Vancouver, I think for almost 25 years. Hmm. So the investments that were then made were really, it was a Lundin family primarily spearheaded by Lucas, uh, Ian and his father. And they would decide what they do and they'd have investors that would come in with them that had been with them a long time. Um, there was no fund per se in those days. Uh, it was just um, decisions by the lending family to, to effectively take control and operational control of different vehicles. Okay, so pretty much all the, the, the things that the group has invested in are public companies and, and they would be in the group as it, depending upon whether or not we were operating and in control of those companies on a day-to-day -day basis. I see, got it. So you've taken this vehicle and you've decided to refocus it on West Africa. What is it that brought you to West Africa specifically? Was it an opening up of the, the political environment? Was it just the gold potential there? What, you know, the geological potential rather? What was it that sort of, I guess, catalyzed that strategic decision? Well, look, I, it, it, it sort of happened on us by circumstance. In other words, I, <laughs> okay. I was dealing with a vehicle that already had an asset in West Africa. Um, Paul Conabare was already dealing with the DRC. Um, the group, the, the Lenny family had done things in other countries like South Africa and stuff in the past. Um, and we just went out and said, look, we, you know, I, I was a, can't even remember how we came to the conclusion that we wanted to get into gold in that part of the world. But um, we saw that as an opportunity. We saw that we believe gold price was going to go up. Um, and we, the due diligence or the, the investigations that I'd been doing vis-a-vis -vis this, this other company showed me that the place to look hard would be West Africa. And we sort of put out that that news or or to our banker friends and to be honest um the red back asset was was presented to me and connected through in those days macquarie bank out of vancouver and mm -hmm. uh, at the time it was it was run by a guy by the name of george brack and they presented us with this opportunity and said you guys should look at this it's right up your alley um, it's ready to go into development or almost there. These guys can't do it. You know, they're expirationists out of Perth. Um, and make a long story short, we got introduced. And after quite a courtship, we ended up doing a deal whereby we merged the Redback Australian vehicle into the Champion Canadian vehicle and changed the name. So hey. we suddenly had a project ready to go into development. And mm -hmm. so there I am, you know, it, all my previous gold experiences in Latin America, 
and now I had to build a gold mine in Africa. And so to place us, what year is this happening in? This would have been 82. 82. Okay. No, sorry, I'm lying. Two thousand. <laughs> okay, that makes more sense. I was like, Jamie, when you get old, when you <laughs> get older, not matching my timeline. <laughs> when you get older, the time frames blur. No, it was two thousand and two. So two thousand two. So two thousand two. You're in Mauritania. Uh, you know, you've acquired the Tazias project. So no, two thousand and two. We're in Ghana. You're in Ghana. Sorry. Okay. We, so we. Have we, we acquired the Chirano deposit. I see. And so Tazias was a later acquisition uh, by Redback yeah. down the road. Yeah. What we did is we, we acquired Chirano. We funded it. We built it. We explored. We made a huge discovery mm -hmm. um, at the mine site. And then we significantly expanded the mine. Um, once we had done that and we knew what our what our production profile was, we then said, look, what do we do for an encore? Well, we go out and find another one. And the one that we ended up, well, the one that we first looked at was an interesting project called Kabali, which happens to be in the DRC, now owned by Anglo and Barrick. Mm -hmm. And so Mark Bristow, when he was running Rangold, actually made a bid on uh, Kabali, and we knew the guys that ran the junior exploration company, and they were very unhappy with the bid. And they came to us and said, look, have a look at this. We're not going to try to sell you. Have a look at it. Go through the data yourselves. And we did. Uh, we had experience in the DRC. We really liked it. And so we overbid Rangold. Mm -hmm. okay. And so we ended up in a bidding war on that project. And uh, in the end, Mark joined with Anglo and that was a combination we, we weren't gonna go and, and play silly butters with and, and going back and forth. And so Rangold ended up paying us a very, very large break fee. And we then went on and took that money and we bought Tassius in Mauritania. Okay, got it. So, so I didn't know the that sort of prelude to the, to the Tassius mine. And you know, Tazias is interesting. Mauritania, a country I think maybe few people would have even heard of at that time. <clears throat> Shortly after that, you know, in 2012, I was actually work working at Hatch and Kinross okay. was one of our clients and we were doing the work for Tazias in Mauritania. And, and, and I hadn't, I, I, you know, I knew nothing about West Africa at the time. Um, you know, I'd like to talk a little bit about, um, you know, of course, the Redback story. But, you know, the, the process of entering a country like that and operating in, you know, what I would see from the outside is a very challenging jurisdiction. I mean, something I learned in, in 2012, which blew my mind, was that Tazia, or not Tazias, rather, Mauritania only officially outlawed slavery in 2009. And for you guys to go into a country that, you know, literally still has slave markets at the time and to be able to operate there effectively. I mean, I, th I feel that's a, that's a situation that the average business person never has to deal with. Most people probably can't even wrap their minds around today. Like, you know, what was it like entering a country like this at this time? Well, you know, I think that the reason that the lending group's been 
as one of the reasons we've been successful as we've been is that you know we'll make our own decisions on on political environment you know we're not going to rely on cnn or some of the the, the more well-known so-called news agencies to tell us or give us advice on what, where we should be or not be um what we do is we'll go in and assess a country uh, based on its geological potential and then we'll have a hard look at what we think about the political and the social environment number one we're not going to take a lot of risk on personal security okay so if we think there's danger to our people we're not going to go in there um, once we're in there and there's things happen we'll adjust to that to a point where we decide it's it's too much and we'll get out but but when we go in we assess you know what we think is going to happen and that and the first i think real success of that was um argentina and you know we went in there uh and acquired or and this is before my time acquired alambrera uh, it was the first project done after that particular cycle of, of horrific argentinian politics and everybody thought the Landines were crazy and that ended up actually really leapfrogging them into the mining business and, and a successful career. And we've just followed, we just followed that pattern, Jamie. So when we went to Mauritania, we looked at it and said, okay, we think this project is something that would really fit what we do. Can we work here? Mm -hmm. And there was two elements to that. Number one, logistics. How hard is it going to be logistically to do something here? And two, can we do it politically? Is, is this going to be too dangerous? Is, is there a danger of nationalization? Is there a danger of unionization? Is there all that stuff? And we look at it. And one of the issues and PR, what's the perception of the country? Are we going to be able to promote it? Um, and the slavery issue was one. And, and what's interesting, you're quite correct about the legalization of slavery. However, if you're from North America and your definition of slavery is what we all know happened in the United States. And that is not the Muslim cultural aspect of slavery. And, and this was fascinating to me that the, the, the slavery in Mauritania, uh, in that culture, carries huge obligations on the owners to provide for their slaves and in all sorts of ways. Don't get me wrong, it's still slavery. It's something that should be condemned and not allowed. But it wasn't heinous in the sense that, uh, you know, we know it today from, from North America and, and quite frankly, the, the first world. So we also saw that that was, you know, had changed, it was changing. Um, the people were getting much more worldly uh, for a very backwards country at the time. And we believed we could operate within that environment. And we met the highest levels of government. Um, we made our own assessments of those people, the longevity of them in terms of politics. And we made the decision to go ahead and, and put some real money in, into the country. Don't get me wrong, that required a huge amount of community relations, government relations, and we have yeah. an exceptional team that's on the ground all the time that um, evaluates that and that team is intact today and is what is involved with us in Sudan. And so, you know, I, I like to dig into this a little bit because, you know, to what we're talking about, a lot of the Lundin Group's reputation is the ability to get things done and be successful in environments that 
other people can't, other people don't enter, or sometimes their competitors aren't able to succeed. And, you know, often the competitors, they're not slouches either. There are big companies, highly successful in other parts of the world, and they're not able to to get the job done, you know, to the degree that investors would like to see in, in these areas where the lending group has succeeded so well. And I, you know, I, I just think about these, this due diligence process. What does, what does that actually look like? Uh, you know, I assume it's not, you know, just Rick Clark dropped off on an airplane with a briefcase having meetings, you know, what, how do you go about saying, okay, look, we're going to be moving into Sudan or we're, we're potentially going to move into Sudan or Mauritania or where have you. What are the steps you go through to, to saying this is an area where we can do business? And like, what do you, do you need to see? Does there need to be a proper judiciary in place? Does there need to be a democratically elected government? What, like, what are the criteria for this sort of thing that, that make this something you think you can get done? I, you know, that's a very big, big question. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, it breaks down into, Jamie, into a number of parts. Uh, you know, one of the due diligence issues, obviously your background is engineering. One of it is the project itself, okay? What are the metrics of the project? What are the economics? You know, looking at it in, and comparing it against all sorts of other, um, other projects around the world, number one. What's the prospectivity of expanding it? or finding another one, what, what's the geological environment? Okay, so that, that's on the engineering um, exploration side. Then there's logistics, which is the development side, and that is, you know, how easy if we find a mine, is it gonna be to build it? You know, can you do it? And over the course of my career, I've seen so many companies go into places and say, okay, we're gonna go explore, we're gonna go find something. And in actual fact, that's great. But, but in many, many cases, you're going to find something and you'll never be able to build it um, because people haven't thought through the logistics of actually getting it built. How close is it to power? Where's the water? How, what about the road access? It goes on and on. And so, you've, again, you've got to assess a place on that basis. Um, on the political side, yeah, you go in and at my level, I can go and meet the government and I make an assessment. Then I have a team and, and all, the, all the companies and the, and the guys that run them in the group have teams that go in locally and we then assess the local side. Are we going to be able to work with these people? What kind of issues are we going to have with their religion, with their culture? Um, how sophisticated are they? How educated are they? Do they have any people that are trained? Are we going to have to train them all? Um, so that is another analysis of due diligence. And, and that's a, a process, that particular uh, branch of it, which you could call CRA or, or community relations, uh, will continue throughout the life of your presence there. The other thing that I did, and I think most of the guys, my equivalents do in the group, is our rule is that if you're going to go into one of these countries, developing countries, and you're going to build a significant project, then the people have to, our people have to live there. You have to be part and become part of the community. You have to be seen as pulling in the same direction as the people and the government um, going forward with these, with these assets. And that's been a failure of a lot of companies where they try to run these things remotely. Um, and, and that's very difficult. And I, in a lot, most cases, a lot of cases, very unsuccessful. So we look at all those things and we say, is this something that, 
where you add all these things up from a due diligence perspective and are we going to go ahead? So that's the analysis we did of Ghana. That's what we did of Mauritania. That's what we've done of Sudan. That's what we've done of Cote d'Ivoire. Just about everywhere we go. Okay. So, you know, when you're, when you're looking at these things, I guess I'm like maybe your personal preference. Do you prefer to take on, let's say, a, a certain degree of political risk as opposed to, say, geological risk? Because there's some groups of people, uh, or rather groups of companies, that are very, very comfortable going into what I would consider highly risky geological environments where they're exploring undercover, where it costs hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars to sink a bloody drill hole. And you know, of course, the, you know, the results can be asymmetric, but the geological risk is very, very high. Uh, on the other hand, looking from the outside, what I see what the Lundin Group has done many times is you know, they've gone after projects with almost zero uh, geological risk in a lot of ways. Um, of course, Fruit del Norte is what comes to mind for me when, when I think of that, or very low geological risk. But when you're, you're taking on political risks or challenges that other investors um, might not be comfortable with or might not be able to, to execute on. Do you have a preference for this or would you as a group have a preference for where you guys like to allocate this sort of money, the money and take on risk? I, I think I'd, uh, I think I can speak for myself and I think to some degree Lucas in this is that we will take on political risk and we love the keep it simple stupid method when it comes to geology. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll mm -hmm. tell you, we, in, in every place we, we've looked, um, we've already, we, we, when we went to, to uh, Ghana, there was already a deposit there. We just made it way bigger and had a vision for it. When we went to um, the DRC, when we looked at Kabali, same thing, there was a deposit there, it had been around forever since the, the you know, 50s. Um, when we went to Mauritania, there was already, a, again, another deposit. And just nobody believed it was going to be the size that it ended up being. So yes, in all those cases, we took very little geological risk. We could, Sudan was a little bit different because there's no deposit. In fact, there was no data. There's mm -hmm. nothing in Sudan. It's one of the last untouched geological uh, regions of the world and certainly Africa. And, but regional geology and surrounding Sudan, there was enough huge amount of smoke, both in Egypt, Saudi Arabia, uh, Eritrea, uh, and one significant deposit uh, in Sudan. So that belt of rocks geologically, every geologist in the world will tell you is incredibly prospective. It's just that nobody's done any significant exploration. So I would argue that we took very little geological risk going to Sudan as well. What we were looking for, though, is the potential for very large mines. Mm -hmm. And that's, so, that's what I, okay, doing. I wrote something down, a quote uh, in preparation for this. And it's, 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 by, it's from a really famous um, Silicon Valley venture capitalist investor named Don Valentine. And I think about this a lot with respect to mining companies. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to I'm gonna say first, this is not in any way meant as a um, criticism of any, any teams out there, yourself included. But it, the, the quote is, I like opportunities that are addressing markets that are so big that even management teams can't get in the way of their success. And the, I kind of think about that with respect to mines as well. It's like finding these opportunities 
that are so big or so so high grade or so uh, potentially lucrative that it's hard to make mistakes there. That like if you can get it going, it's going to make money. And and the reason I think about this is because my view of mining is you know the unknowable problems outweigh the knowable problems by a factor of you know an order of magnitude often you know often you don't know what's in the ground for sure you don't know what it's going to cost to get out of the ground for sure you don't know what price you're going to be able to sell it you don't you know there's so many factors that are outside your control that i think it makes sense to go you almost have to go after things that are obviously big wins because by the time all the reality checks come in place they'll hopefully still be pretty good wins well let me follow on that because it and and it's an interesting thing for people to think about you look at the stories today that have been generated over the last year as we've now come back to sort of an exploration uh, you know development market in the mining business um how many new discoveries are actually being followed hardly any mm. all the discover all the work that are being done by companies in and i'm generalizing but i think it's a fair generalization today are on, on projects that have been known for a long long time all the way back to the last gold cycle um, and they didn't go forward because of all sorts of reasons but predominantly the market and gold price mm -hmm. and our view on that is if a project couldn't work in that environment in the past, what's going to make it really work now? So we very much, you know, is it just, you're just going to, you know, wave a magic wand over it and say that gold price solves all those issues that you're talking about. It doesn't. And so what we're focused on is we're focused on low risk in terms of either grade or size or throughput or metallurgy uh, location. I mean, we look and, and we're all always looking for something that's new that hasn't been developed. Now you look at Frutinel Nurse is a good example. Yeah, it was known, but nobody ever tried to develop it because we ran into political problems. There was lots of attempts and the whole thing, but even in the last gold cycle, if they could have solved the government issues, they could have built it. So we, now we look at stuff that is as much as brand new that is, as I said, the keep it simple, stupid method on geology as we possibly can, whether that's making an acquisition of a more advanced project or going into an area for exploration. Okay. So, you know, getting back a little bit to the success that you guys had at Redback. Uh, I think many people listening to this will know this story, but eventually you ended up selling this to Kinross for $7 billion. My only question here is, what is it like to get a $7 billion check as a company? Oh, did it all go to our heads to a certain degree? Sure. <laughs> um, but, but you, you know, as I say, you have to remember the environment at the time is that we were not the only $7 billion deal being done. There was a number of them. Hmm. Um, and, you know, all of them, the majority of the ones that were done at that level, all got, you know, written down or written off or, you know, and, and you could argue that people paid too much. But at the time, I can tell you that that gold price was flying. The investment market was flying. Um, and 
we were in a bubble. And even after we did that deal with with Kinross in 2010, gold continued to go and, and Kinross, Kinross's stock price continued to go up. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't as if we sold it to them and everything fell off a cliff. It took, it took a while for the market to change. But it was a wild ride. Don't, yeah. don't get me wrong. I mean, um, I remember going into New York to go see some, some funds and everything. And, uh, you know, let's face it, our, our little, we live in a little bubble though, Jamie, the mining industry is not a very big industry in the grand scheme of things, but within our, within our own little world, um, you know, everybody knew us, everybody knew our name, everybody in our deal. Um, everybody was going out to Lundin's do it again. Uh, you know, and, and it was, it was really exciting to have that kind of validation and win for the business plan that we had in that regard. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to turn that question on its head based on what you just said, because, you know, you see Ken Ross keep going up after that. Was there ever a moment you were like, you know, damn Lucas, maybe we could have got seven and a half billion dollars for that. Did you, did that conversation ever happen after? No, no. Okay. So people were happy with the, the price tag for sure. We, we, we think we're pretty good at what we do and we mm-hmm. think we extracted and I'm sure Ken Ross will agree. We think we extracted the value <laughs> that we could get out of, uh, out of that time and project and, uh, and uh, competitive process. It, it was a great win. I don't think anybody would say that we left money on the table for our shareholders. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, all right, you guys got some money in the bank after this. What happens? Did you, did you hit the beach for the next two years and, and you know, hang out uh, or was it back to the boardroom the next day? And, you know, where can we find Redback 2.0? Look, you know what? It was, as I said, um, I, I could, that was the biggest win I've ever had in my career and and um, you know I, I hope I can do as well or close to it with a, with another win but you know if that's the only major win I have I've done extremely well in our business um, but to give you an idea that we went right back to work we had built up I had a very very large and successful team and we were now ready to do other things um, Lucas you know this was just one of the major investments and management um, aspects that they had in the group uh, in Redback. And we had many more at that point in time and doing other deals. This was business as usual, even though it was very, very large. And I also, um, now from my perspective, you know, I got in early and what I did and why I made the money I made, Jamie, is that when I joined Adolf way back when, he said to me, if you're going to make money in this business, you have to get in your head. All these people that run around and want stock options and all this stuff, they didn't have DSUs and PSUs and, and RSUs in those days. But they, he said to me, if you want to make money, you write checks. And when I walk down the hall and say we're making an investment in a company as a group, he goes, I hope you write a check. Which means I better write a check. <laughs> and, uh, and at the time, I didn't have, you know, the kind of money I could write big, big checks. But I started off and I contributed in any deal that the Lundines were doing. And at the end of the day, I made all my money by writing checks. And the difference between me and most of the guys in Redback was I was able to do that for a long period of time and they weren't. So there was a disparity between what management made from that Redback deal and the other guys 
they all wanted to keep going. They, they weren't ready to retire. They, they had, they were younger and had careers and away we went. So that's what you do. We kept going. How rare is that? Do you find in this business for, for management teams to, or, or, or just, you know, not necessarily senior managers, but people to continue to be writing checks into theirs deals or the deals that they get exposure to, uh, you know, in, in, in my own career, I think I've been really, really lucky in that I worked with a group of people that I saw that happening early on and them putting money into the seed round and it not working out quite as they'd hope. And then the next round and the next round and the next round, and then making sort of a big win off that. And so it got drilled into my head really early on that, you know, there's no, there's no free lunch, so to speak, and you have to put your money where your mouth is and, and take that risk. But, you know, as I've, I've worked with other people and other groups, I actually see that that's quite rare and that even people who are very successful in the mining industry are very, um, are often surprisingly risk adverse with their own money. Do you, do you, do you find that at all? Yeah. I, look, and I'm, I'm spoiled um, very much over the years because I've been in the business so long. Um, you gradually gravitate towards people with similar mindsets as yours and similar business. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the guys that I, uh, you know, have huge respect for and, and call my friends in the business um, have very much the same mindset that, that we do. And obviously at the top of the list is, is Lucas. Um, then you have, you know, my friend Ross Beatty, you know, the, it's the same thing. You go Bob Quartermain, you go Rick Rule. I mean, I can go on and on and on. Right. These, yeah. are, these are people, but, but I can go on and on and on because they're friends of mine and, and the list has got sort of refined as I've got older. But, you know, tellingly of that risk, of that list, rather, those are very, very successful, very, very wealthy people. Uh, and, you know, perhaps there's some correlation there between the people that write the checks and the people that sort of end up on the top of their field. Well, I can tell you, and all those people I mentioned, I know how they started in this business. Okay. We are all self-made. And everybody thinks that Lucas started with a silver spoon in his mouth. His, he did not. Adolf Landine was no different than any other entrepreneur in those days. And you got to remember, he was by himself mostly. He didn't have the group that developed. And here's a guy that was writing his own checks, doing his own deals, finding his own stuff. Um, his financial fortunes were up and down like you wouldn't believe. And if you listen to Lucas and his brother and sisters talk about it, you know, amazing family and uh there was times where you know the best thing that happened in their family to go forward was lucas's mother and her background so you know they they always put their money where their mouth is and none of us none of us um came from a a wealthy background yeah no it's interesting and i'd heard a bit of that before i think in some like swedish magazine i, I read an interview with adolf and it was like you know one year maybe there's a big house and then that's got to get sold and it's a smaller house and then there's ups and downs and you know it's it's hard to uh you know in hindsight it looks like such a nice story but i i you know i think people maybe don't give people credit how you know the stomach of steel that's required to suffer through those changes of fortune and ups and downs and redeploy and go back into it well i'm you know i'm no different i remember a time i had three little kids you know, I'd left my law degree. Um, my in-laws at the time thought I was absolutely insane. You know, what are you doing? 
And, um, you know, my wife at the time is, who was very, very an important part of my career and how I became successful, she was fully supportive. And, but it was rough. I mean, I didn't know how I was going to make mortgage payments. I didn't know anything, mm -hmm. but I was still doing things like trying to scrape together the money I could do to, to write checks. And once, once it starts happening, uh, you get smarter and uh, you start investing more in things that you know, and with people, you know, and projects, you know, um, then things start to work in your favor and, and uh, the rest is history. So coming back to sort of the transition here into, into Orca, you know, you'd mentioned earlier that there was very, very little data available on Sudan in general. Now, on the other hand, you've also said that you guys, you know, like to keep it simple with respect to geological risk, go after the sure things or the surer things. How do you balance those two things going into a country which is, you know, not a not an unchallenging environment, shall we say, from the get go. And also you don't have, uh, you know, some of the benefits you might have in other parts of the world of decades and decades of modern geological exploration, databases, and et cetera, et cetera, all the things so many geologists rely on to make discoveries. So how do you reconcile that? And how do you decide, okay, you know, this is where we, uh, we want to kind of make our next stand? Okay, a couple of things happened in that regard. Sudan, we had as a group experience in Sudan. I, I, the reason I got my 1980s and my uh, 2000s mixed up is I first went to Sudan in 1981. Um, I, did an really? overland, I did an overland trip in a truck from Nairobi to Cairo, all the way through Sudan. Was this a work and, thing or just like an interest no, that you wanted called, to go and explore? Yeah, that's pleasure. Okay. <laughs> okay. And it, it was rough, let me tell you, but it was an incredible <laughs> part of my life. But I got to know Sudan, I got to know the people, um, the terrain, the area, and, and coincidentally, um, you know, I went very, very close in that truck to today where we have Block 14. So, and Lucas and his family had been involved in Sudan um, also uh, in oil exploration. And so they knew it and they'd had a, even to, when we started, they still had some charitable things going on in Sudan. And um, so we were aware of that. But the real thing for us, Jamie, is, is one of the things that we've been incredibly fortunate uh, with is, is working with a guy by the name of Hugh Stewart, who you know, who, who's now running Montage. And Hugh is probably one of the most successful gold gold finders in Africa of his generation. And um, I can't remember how many ounces he is credited to his name now, but it's staggering. And when we were looking after Redback, where do we go? Hugh and his team are the ones that came to us and said, well, if we can get our heads around the politics, then the place to be is Northern Sudan. And so that's why Lucas and I, and, and in order, because look, it was risky. Don't get me wrong, we knew the risk. So when we first went into Sudan for the first couple of years, Lucas and I funded the company ourselves, uh, personally. And and because we, there's there's sanctions at this time on Sudan. Am I, am I correct sanctions. on that? Yeah. yeah. There was sanctions on Sudan, um, both economic and otherwise. But so we went in, we weren't gonna take any of other people's money for this because we were taking a real punt here. And the punt, was twofold. One, how fast can we actually find something that may have potential? And two, 
are we guessing right on politics? And so we, we went in and said, the first thing we believed was Sudan was gonna separate into South Sudan and Sudan. And that happened within a couple of years of us starting our first venture there. Um, and so we went, okay, our, our assessment of politics going forward seems to be on the right track. Now, where's, what are we doing with the project side? And we heard um, about a gold rush that was going on in the north of Sudan, near the Egyptian border. And all of us in the business have, you know, heard about gold rushes, California, British Columbia, you know, you name it, uh, Brazil, Venezuela. And we thought, okay, let's, let's go up and see what this is. We were absolutely blown away. We ended up being in the middle of, of the biggest gold rush in history and nobody in the world knew what was going on. So literally tens of thousands of Sudanese were up with metal detectors walking the deserts of Northern Sudan. And, you know, we, and they were doing some very localized surface mining and so we sent our exploration team in there and very quickly narrowed it down to an area we liked. Um, the block was owned by a local businessman, a fruit farmer out of a local community on the Nile River. We ended up cutting a deal with him. Uh, what a lot of people don't know is we had competition on that, an English company by the name of Toro. And yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and Toro ended up developing the Mako gold mine that was recently in the last couple of years purchased by Resolute. That's right, because they were private and funded by resource capital funds primarily. Am I getting that right? You got it yeah, right. Yeah. Mm. Okay, and it gets better. The guy that ran Toro and was competing against us for Block 14 is now the CEO of Sentiment. Huh. And that's the Egyptian company, yeah. right? Am I right on that? Yeah, okay. Immediately to the north of us across the border. Right. So he's had a fascination with this area for a long time. Long, long time. So we go up there, we find this, we find an area. Now, most of the artisanal miners, they're doing remnant prospecting with metal detectors, but a couple of areas, they're finding some veins and they're following them down. We found an area where these guys were actually working the bedrock itself. There wasn't any veins. Um, it's a typical shear structure and we liked it. We got the project on that basis. We soil sampled it, we trenched it, we got great results. The first drill hole, 60 some odd meters of two and a half grams. Okay, <laughs> so off to the races after that. So yeah. that's, two, that's, that's 2003, sorry, 2013, that's 2013. And in, two, in the fall of 2018, we delivered to the government and the market a bankable feasibility on Block 14. And we'd also permitted the project. All, okay. So from, from discovery with no data to bankable feasibility and permitted, five years. Five years. So help me paint a picture here because, you know, I, I've never been to Sudan and I think that probably is true for most of our listeners out there. I'm like picturing like the Sahara-esque blowing sand dunes and Bedouins running around. Is it anything like that? Or like, what is this actual environment looking like? Okay, uh, so every, most people's perception of the Sahara Desert is, is created by Hollywood, 
which mm -hmm. is great. I think I'm huge. thinking Lawrence of Arabia here is yeah. that's in my mind. Great big, huge, desolate, barren sand dunes with winds blowing the sand everywhere. And there are places in the Sahara Desert like that, but not where we are. Um, where we are is a geologist's dream come true. Okay, where it, there is bedrock everywhere. Um, it is easy access. There's tons and tons of flat plains. Um, the resistive rocks stick out of the ground. Uh, you can go in and map. Geophysics works like a dream. There's no flora, no fauna, okay? No local inhabitants. The, the only people there are illegal miners, artisanal miners. Um, and there's no water table. It is a absolute perfect environment for mine. Mm -hmm. And it's 200 kilometers away from the nearest community. And you know what, Jamie, you go back to it, you, but it's arid. It is, it is dry. And does it get sandstorms? Yes. But not, not like you think these huge sandstorms that come and absolutely decimate a camp. That doesn't happen. But you can be in a sandstorm and you can't see your hand in front of your face for a while. Um, <laughs> now, the key, and this is another thing that frustrates me about our business, again, and, and we touched upon it, is it's all very well to go and tell somebody you've got a project but you haven't thought through the logistics. And in our case, if you're out in this type of an environment, you can find whatever you want, but if you don't have water to process it, it's not a mine. Right, right. So here we are in the desert and we knew once we made a discovery, we, the priority had to be now find water and water would determine how big we could make the project. And so we went on a very extensive geophysical program for finding water and make a long story short, we got lucky. We found a huge aquifer about a hundred kilometers away from the mine site. Um, again, I told you a lot of this is, is there's a lot of topography, but the base is all flat. And in fact, uh, the bore field was 300 meters higher than the mine site. So most of the water flow will be gravity. And uh, people go, oh my God, a hundred, hundred, you know, kilometer pipeline. I got news for you. That's nothing. Uh, has anybody ever seen these oil pipelines? The, Fair enough. And in Tassius, the pipelines are about 65, 70 kilometers long. And at the time I left it to Kinross, there was three of them. And I'm sure they've made them even bigger since then. So this is very normal for our industry and other industries. And the water is fresh water. It's potable, it recharges, and uh, it's, you, you know, it's unlimited. We could, we, well, it's never unlimited. It's unlimited for our purposes. In other words, there's no way we could make the mine big enough to, to affect the water table. And when you say it recharges, this means the mine's able to recycle much of the water that's been used? No, the reservoir itself recharges. And the reason I see, know, I see. Yeah. The reason we know it is that it's fresh water. So would you say that in this particular case, this was actually in some ways more of a water exploration project than a, a mineral exploration project? Which one was harder to find? The water. Yeah, interesting. The water was harder. <clears throat> I mean, so we found, originally we found a different water source, which, had, which was smaller and it was brackish. It was a perch, what they call a perched water table. And that would not have allowed us to maximize the economics of the mine. Right. Okay. 
So let's talk about what block 14 actually is. What did you guys end up finding there? Okay. So when we got there to give you, give you an idea, the size of the concession was 7,000 square kilometers. Okay. So okay. All, all Sudan knew was oil and gas. Okay. Right. So when they, when they created mining, a mining code, they went, Oh, okay, we'll just make them the same size as the oil and gas concessions. Well, what do you do with 7,000 square kilometers in the middle of nowhere with no data? Yeah. Where do you start? And, and that's how we did it. We don't make any bones about it. We followed, started following our, all the artisanals. The interesting story, Jamie, about everybody, and, and somebody twigged on this uh, a couple years ago, and they said to me, well, how did they find it? It's 200 kilometers away from the nearest uh, community, and it's 200 kilometers away from the Nile. How did these guys find it? And what happened is, you know, you know you have these transitory camel herding that goes across the, the deserts. Mm -hmm. in, in our, on our concession are a whole bunch of old pharaonic gold mines workings. And the, you can still see the foundations of the mining villages. You can still see the tools they worked with. Okay, so this is, these are over 2,000, 2,500 years old. Huh. And the beauty what of the is pharaonic? Sorry, what is pharaonic reference? Is this a culture? The pharaohs. Pharaohs. Okay, got it. Pharaohs of Egypt. Okay, or the pharaohs okay. of the region. Yeah, yeah. A bunch of the pharaohs came from Sudan. At one point in time, the what we call the Egyptian Empire or the pharaonic Empire was centered in Sudan. Um, okay, so it's clear that the majority of the gold of those of those times that empire came from this area whether it's in Southern Egypt or Northern Sudan. And there's lots of old workings. And so these modern guys, these modern artisanal miners found those old workings and then just started to pick around with metal detectors and, and expand it out. And it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Okay, so those guys found it from old workings. We found ours from more modern workings and applied modern geology to it, mm -hmm. but you know, there you go. It's a, it's an interesting story. So what did we find? Well, we've got a resource that's now over 4 million ounces. We have 2.8 million ounces in reserves. Okay. Um, and the thing that makes our project stand out overall life of mine, um, the current grade is 1.1, 1.2 grams. Okay. Overall, the mine life is 13 years, but what sends ours apart and, and how to explain the mine plan is if you compare us, for example, to a Cardinal or some of these others, block 14 has a core, a high grade core of 2 million ounces of two grams open pitable. Okay. The strip ratio is 1.5 to one. Mm -hmm. So it's from surface. And so the way the mine plan works is for the first seven, eight years, we're just pretty much mining the high grade core and stockpiling the lower grade material. At the end of eight years, assuming we find not one more ounce from expiration, we'll then process the low grade stockpiles, which then on a life of mine basis takes the grade down, okay? But from an economics perspective and an NPV perspective, the project's spectacular because for the first seven years you're mining high grade. Mm -hmm. And 
that makes a lot of difference when you're trying to convince people to finance a project in a country that's never had a big gold mine before. Yeah. Okay. So that the payback at today's gold price is less than two years. Less than two years. Covering, of course, all capital costs, everything to, to build and get it going. Huh. So question I have on this, you know, I'm looking at your share price right now. Hmm. You guys are trading at 57 cents and have a market cap of $130 million thereabouts. Canadian. Yeah. Canadian. So what's the MPV on this thing uh, as you guys have calculated it? At 1350 gold, it's about 660 million. Okay. <laughs> at 1800 gold, it's about a billion and change. So let's have a hypothetical here. If this wasn't spoken out of the ground in Sudan, but was maybe uh, you know down the road in Cote d'Ivoire or Ghana or a more established mining jurisdiction, you know what are you seeing these things valued at in, in those environments? Well, this is different because Jamie, if that was the case, this would be built or almost built. Mm -hmm. uh, and because of the grade, because of how simple this mine is to build and, and operate and process, it would carry a premium on that basis. Um, so, you know, who knows? I mean, we're getting hit hard with the Sudan discount factor. That should change dramatically by the end of this year with Sudan being completely off any sanction list and fully open for foreign investment. Then, and we're already, I can tell you, we're already seeing that. We're already seeing a lot more interest in the last couple of months than we've had in, in a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And as people realize that Sudan's going to be off all the no-go lists, and in fact, there is going to be foreign investment, there is going to be interaction between Sudan and the rest of the world. Sudan's got an embassy now in the U.S. It's being a, going to become an official embassy in Sudan. Canada's elevated their presence in Sudan to an embassy. It's all happening. And... Um, you know, my prediction is over the next five years, every significant gold company will be or have some activity in Sudan looking for something like we have. So we've been we've been down this road before. OK, if you if you look at what we did when we first did Toronto, when we announced we had this project and we were ready to build it, our market cap was 50 million bucks. Mm -hmm. Um, that's how we started. And we had to prove to the world. We, we were the first mine built in, in Ghana in a 10 year period. And, and every, everybody believed it was, you know, how are you going to do this? How are you going to make it work? Um, and we made the decision, well, screw that. Well, we're going to start building it and let's see what happens. And at the end of the day, we will build this mine and, uh, prove to everybody that it's a real mine and it's worth a lot of money. So that's, um, that's certainly the, I've got the backing to do that with our shareholder group. Um, what we have, I was, as I said, I was in Sudan a couple of weeks ago. We've advised the government, given their political success and the work, how hard they've worked to um, normalize with the Western world, that we are going to start development of the project in January, pre-development. We are going, uh, we've, are, we've purchased two phases of development camps, which will give us at the end of the day, about 150 um, beds, modern beds on our resource. Uh, and the first phase is in Khartoum. The second phase arrives in Sudan in January. We are going to start drilling off about three years of war. 
um, in anticipation of mining. And we're going to build our airstrip and we're going to do other things in terms of logistics. And that'll take us to the middle of the year. And in my discussions with Lucas, it's our intention to put the financing package together for the mine um, in the first part of the year and have it together and, and available by the middle of the year. Okay. So let me ask you a question. When you guys sold um, Redback to, to Kinross, mm -hmm. you know, where you're in a super hot gold market, things are going really well in the industry. How many ounces do you have on the books at that point? Oh, that's a good question. That's how long is a piece of string because everybody was guessing at Tassiest. Um, we were, let me tell you what, we were producing 500 to 550,000 ounces a year at Red mm -hmm. Market at that time. And I think our reserves at the time were somewhere in the order of 7 million. 7 million. Okay. And so today in Sudan, you've got uh, 4 million uh, on the books. Now, what is in your view, assuming things work out politically, what is the timeline realistically that this could be an actual producing asset? Is it a year away? Is it five years away? What, what could this potentially, what could happen here? Conservatively, very conservatively, uh, we're calling two and a half year build. Okay. I think, I think it's possible to do it in two. It depends on how things go logistically in terms of Sudan, in terms of how smoothly the port facilities work, how smoothly the transport works, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, it's a much, much easier environment to build a mine in than Mauritania was. You know, there's a lot more infrastructure. There's a railway within 100 kilometers of the mine. There's, there's a paved road within four hours of the mine, um, et cetera. And Khartoum's a big city, and you can get just about anything you need in Khartoum. So that was not the case in Mauritania. So I think that's a realistic time frame. That's certainly what we're telling the government. And we will accelerate that as, as much as we possibly can. Um, it's a big project, as I said, there's nothing there. We have to build the full camp, we have to build power, we have to build the water pipeline, um, and it's gotta be self-containing. Okay, so I wanna talk for a second about montage, but before I do, you know, the question that I think is on, on everybody's mind here with respect to Orca, you know, you're operating in one of the driest places on the planet. Why did you name the company after a whale? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you can tell <laughs> even, even geologists and mining engineers and uh, can have senses of humor. The private company that, that we created for um, this project, um, originally it, it was called Shark. Okay. The company that Lucas and I started was called, I think, Gazelle. And, and so Shark brought in all the Redback guys, mm -hmm. and the Shark ate the Gazelle. <laughs> okay. And okay. Shark stood for, for Simon, Hugh, Alessandro, Rick, and Kevin, who were the management team of Redback. Okay. So that was the acronym Shark. And then we decided, seeing as we were going along with this eating theme, what was the only predator of a shark? And that's an it. <laughs> okay, good. All right, Rick, we've been at this for an hour now. And yeah. um, I want to touch on, though, something recent that's happened in your portfolio. 
which is Montage Gold, a company that uh, myself and our investors have been invested in for some time now, recently listed on the TSXV. This is, of course, I would call it a, an exploration, an advanced exploration stage asset focused in Cote d'Ivoire, which the star asset was uh, sort of spun out of Orca. So right. what is Montage? What do you guys do in there? And why should anyone care about it? Okay. And in cognizant of the time, I'll do this quickly. Um, montage, it, it, the reason we spun it out, Jamie, is we believed that the Montage assets um, were capable of standing on their own. Um, we were getting no value for them in Orca. In fact, a, a couple of years ago, or a year ago, we got an overture from a, from a producer that came in and said, we'd like to make you a bid for Orca. And they gave us a breakdown of their valuations and, and they gave us zero for the assets in CDI. And I said, as part of the deal, I said, well, let's assume we can come to a price for Orca. We'll just spin those assets out. And they went, no, 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 no. No, we're going to buy the whole thing. And the market values it at zero. Therefore, you can't give it any value. Mm. And I went to, I went to them and I said, well, that's, I'm sorry. that The market isn't necessarily the smartest thing in the world. And, uh, and we're not going to agree to that. Anyway, the, the deal didn't happen because we couldn't agree on price. Well, they and, wanted to keep them, but they didn't want to pay for them, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the easiest adage is, is an Australian one where what they, what they call this is they say, we go in to buy a barbecue and we want the steak knives thrown in for free. Okay. Um, so we said no steak knives. And, uh, and when that deal fell apart, it didn't happen. I then went, okay, I don't want this to be a problem in the future. We think there's real value here. Let's, let's spin this out. And we did a deal obviously with the Sandstorm guys and, and, and created a new company that we called Montage, put everything into it, and then waited and watched the development of the asset. We funded it with your help and, and uh, as a private company. And then we uh, did some work and, and moved the, the projects along and they looked incredibly prospective. We picked the market and took the company public. And as you know, at the day, we listed, uh, we created something that had zero value in, in Orca and had a market cap then of $110 million. Um, so it seems to me the, uh, the, the company that was looking to acquire Orca back when, um, you know, we got to prove our point. Yes. So, yeah. you know, success, it was a very successful IPO. Um, you know, unfortunately, right after that, we had a softening significant $150 fall in the gold market, gold price, <clears throat> and and people, uh, a lot of people took that opportunity to trade, for whatever reason, trade out without really fo following or focusing on what what Montage is, and what Montage, what Montage is 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 a significant resource, lowish grade, at the point at this point it's about a gram, but what what makes it unique, Jamie, is it's it's 200. The mineralization is 200 meters wide. It's on surface, from surface. The strip ratio is like 0.5 to to one. Um, the metallurgy is excellent, whether it's oxides or sulfides, and the ore is soft. It's an earth-moving exercise. And there's there's a number of comparables. I mean, I'm not going to suggest we're going to be the size of a Perica two that you know well. It it's uh, a Kinross's operation. But Kinross is, is mining 
on open pit operation at 0.38. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's an earth moving exercise. And we believe that there's the potential for a higher cutoff grade and, uh, you know, a starter operation in the number of years, first years that are going to pay for the whole thing anyway. And at the same time, expiration continues. I mean, our objective is to get this up to the same size as block 14, up around 4 million ounces, um, by the time we go to do a feasibility study. And Hugh has now got six drills on site. He told me uh, today he's got another one coming. Um, we're going to be drilling the hell out of this thing, just like we did at Tassiest. And we'll be looking to come out with a, the PEA on this um, by the, the end of March. And we're on target to deliver the market a feasibility study by the end of the year. And at the same time, we're looking at a whole thing, a lot of things around it and a lot of potential deals that we can do to make this even bigger and better. It is, my understanding, it's one of the biggest projects in CDI in terms of size. And um, I'm, I am very confident the economics are gonna be compelling under the PEA. And it's gonna be another, another success for the group. Okay. And of course, you're the chairman of Montage. Hugh, we've talked about a little bit and we're going to have on this podcast shortly, is the CEO. You know, I just want to touch briefly on you. You talked about the very, very low strip ratio. You talked about the soft ore. I mean, the implications of this are what? The fact that this could be potentially something that's very, very cheap to mine. Is that right? That's exactly right. The bigger, the better, because the bigger the mine, the lower the operating costs. And, you know, how many companies are there gold companies in africa that are looking for large very cheap to mine deposits my guess is that if you can establish this there's going to be a lot of people chomping at the bit to get something like this in cote d'ivoire a company that compared to a lot of its neighbors is a very stable safe environment into their portfolio am i am i interpreting that correctly this was my investment thesis coming into a project like this you know, if you listen to the, the majors today, they all talk about, they talk about grade. In the last cycle, it was all about size, okay? But that doesn't mean everybody is done in 180 degrees. The issue is more one that's, that's subjective. In other words, this project, call it a gram, okay? Virtually no strip, soft ore, goes through a mill like a dream, okay? Um, so what's, what's the risk on this? The risk on this is that when you've got a low grade operating mine like this, there's, there's very little room for error. So you need to be hundred percent confident on, on the resource itself and the grade. You don't want any surprises to the negative. So you've got to drill it like hell, which we are. You don't want any surprises on the metallurgy. You want to prove to everybody on a variability basis that the, no matter which part of the or body that you're in, you still get really good recoveries. Um, you need the softness to prove up. If you solve all those issues, the one gram aspect isn't going to bother too many people. Okay. Now, you know, the last financing was at a dollar ten cents. Uh, today around 80 cents pretty consistently. Obviously, you know, that's not ideal for you. That's not ideal for me as a shareholder. But if you're someone listening to this now, you know, you're going to have the opportunity to get in at something like 25% less, which, you know, Lucas Lundin put in money, Ross Beattie put in money, a lot of big institutions and banks and funds and et cetera also participate in this round. So 
for people who are thinking about this stock, I mean, what's going to happen over the next year? You mentioned there's six drills on site. Do I understand it correctly? You're going to drill something like 50,000 meters. Am I, am I off on that? That's what I thought I heard, but I, I could be wrong. No, that's approximately right. Um, you know, the first major thing you're going to hear about is the, the numbers on the PEA. Um, obviously, if we can get our, there are some higher, some impressive grade holes in this, this ore body. Um, Hugh needs to drill closer to them so that we can understand what's controlling that grade. And that's part of this program. Um, Kevin uh, Ross, who's the chief operating officer, he needs that data. He needs to understand for his purposes of playing around with the cutoff grade and elevated cutoff grade. And so he's, we're going to be looking at making the thing a lot bigger, focusing on what controls grade, coming out with the PEA with the economics in the first instance. And, um, and then based on that, we'll, we'll push forward on a, on a, for the feasibility study. So you're going to have drill data in Q1. At the end of Q1, you're going to have numbers for the economics. And then we will continue developing and trying to, and looking to make the project bigger trying to get more grade, coming out with a, with a final bankable feasibility study at the end of next year. Rick, we've got a little bit over time, uh, but it's been a really awesome conversation. I wanna be cognizant of everything else you have to do today. But you know, we've talked about a lot of the success your group's had all over the world now. Um, for people who are watching this and wondering why I no longer have headphones on, it's because they died. So this isn't <laughs> any sort of trick, but you guys have been going all over the world is there anywhere that um, is particularly challenging that you have your eye on that's sort of a geologist's dream that you guys would love to, to one day move into? Like for me, when I look at places like this, I always think of Iran as like the, the sort of the holy grail that if you could ever get in there, there's deposits just sticking out of the ground. Is there anything that kind of is on your bucket list that you're hoping one day you can get access to? You know what? Good question. Um, I'm never going to say never to, to anything like that. I can tell you that for me, and at this point in my career, um, uh, my excitement now, Jamie, is with Sudan emerging into the, the, the modern world and um, people being able to go there and, and invest and explore. Uh, we're going to look at acquiring more ground right now in Sudan. Um, I think for what it is and where it is, it is probably in terms of Africa, the most prospective place to be at the moment. And uh, I think I'm going to pr be proven right on that um, over the next five years. So my guess is uh, in terms of what I run as a CEO, I'm probably going to go out, of, out in terms of my career by focusing on Sudan, but I'll leave it to the younger guys at the lending group to, uh, to advance venture into places like Iran. I think it's great. We've looked at it before. Um, we've been into some other crazy places in that part of the world. Um, you know, the Lundin boys, Lucas's sons are all in the business now. Um, I've got, I've got sons of the same age, Paul Conabare does. And, uh, and I think you're going to see over the next few years, uh, a, a real push by that generation to take over from the, the old, old guys. All right. Well, Rick, thank you very much for taking the time today. For those listening at home, check out Orca Gold, check out Montage Gold. I think a lot of great opportunities to be had here for investors. And Rick, again, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for the invite.
Did you enjoy today's podcast? Me too. If you want more like it, head over to resource-insider.com, my website where you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter, where you're going to get instant access to all of our new podcasts and videos. We're going to keep you up to date on what's going on in the mining industry. And most importantly, we're going to show you where we're investing our own money and what I think are the hottest deals and opportunities in the sector. Thanks for listening.